This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, and then Matthew 16, verses 1 through 12. It can be found starting on page 820 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew chapters 15, 1 to 20, and chapter 16, 1 to 12. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of his mouth, this defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Ex explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test them, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing that among themselves, saying, we, bought, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, of you, you, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive 
Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name's Mike. Really glad to be with you here this morning. Today we're continuing in the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new here, new to the Bible, new to the Bible story, the, the Gospel of Matthew is one of four accounts of the life of Jesus. And today we're going we're, we're gonna to see the situation where it turns out Jesus is kind of a firebrand in his day just as much as, as he is in our day. We're going to encounter these confrontations that Jesus had between the elites, between the religious establishment of his day, and himself. I think there's a lot for us to think about, a lot that applies to us. So I'd like us to approach God's word with prayer. Lord, I, I do ask that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see, and that you would give us the gift of self-examination this morning, that we would not begin by looking for hypocrisy out there, but instead, Lord, that we would look for it here. We ask that, that you would purify us more and more um, as one of the many local churches in this area, and we pray for all the churches in Lake County, that you would purify all of us to be a people marked by worship, by authentic community, by mission, and by a way of life that, that reflects the kingdom to come. I pray that this passage would, would push us in that direction this morning, and that we'd be eager and excited to obey and to see what you have for us through obedience. Amen. So we kind of live in this interesting era. There's a, a writer that called this era the age of authenticity. Authenticity has become very, very important to us. What I mean by that is we find it very important to be true to ourselves, to be true to our convictions. Websites and periodicals are actually publishing articles, such as four ways to be an authentic person, how to be authentic in a fake world. The Harvard Business Review even published this article on their, their blog instructing leaders how to be more authentic. One of the points of advice was simply have your own point of view. That was it. Like, we're, we're, we're so out of touch with authenticity that the Harvard Business Review is telling leaders, hey, you should probably have points of view on things. People don't just want to be authentic, right? They don't want to just be true to themselves. They also want to experience authenticity. So, for example, take foodies, for instance. They're, they're, you know, as, as foodies, we're constantly looking for authentic cuisine, right? Authentic cuisine. So you don't go to Memphis and look up a famous Dave's, Right? You find the barbecue place on the backside of the residential area behind the hospital with a barely legible sign, and that's where you're going to find authentic Memphis barbecue. It doesn't it always seem to as the like the in the more disarray a place is in, the more authentic it is. Like sometimes that's kind of a good rule to go by, right? Authenticity has become kind of a, a selling point. It's become a selling point. And so inevitably what you're also seeing is folks starting to capitalize on it. Folks are starting to capitalize on authenticity, manufacture it. So take TED Talks, for instance. Like, make no mistake. Those speakers are tailoring their appearance, the way they talk, 
everything to come across as down to earth as possible. Or another example, I'm not questioning her motives at all, but it's just interesting the way that she sort of capitalized on authenticity would take the way that Elizabeth Warren announced her 2020 presidential campaign. She doesn't do it behind a podium. She does it over Instagram, having a beer in her kitchen, right? Because authenticity equals credibility, right? We're eager for authenticity. We think that it's deeply important, so people are manufacturing it. And in this age of authenticity, what's also, what we're also seeing happen is we're all sort of on high alert for hypocrisy, Few sins are worse in the age of authenticity than hypocrisy. So just take the way that both sides of the aisle attack each other. From one side, you have folks attacking Hillary Clinton during her campaign because she claimed to be for the working class, and it was taking funds from Goldman Sachs. On the other side, you have the Republicans who criticized Obamacare for the rush job it was, and then when they had a chance to amend it, they rushed the job, right? So we have hypocrisy on both sides, both sides accusing each other of hypocrisy. It seems to be everywhere. We're eager for authenticity, hate hypocrisy. And it's important to recognize that God's people are guilty of it too. God's people are guilty of hypocrisy too. And the world notices Michael Gerson, he's a, a conservative Republican columnist for the Washington Post. He's an evangelical himself. He wrote this just stellar article for The Atlantic. And in it, he, he writes this. Christians have become one interest group. Again, he's speaking as a Christian. Actually, uh, graduated from Wheaton. Christians have become one interest group among many, scrambling for benefits at the expense of others rather than seeking the welfare of the whole as Pastor Tim Keller says, in popular usage, evangelical is nearly synonymous with hypocrite. And now, we have a choice to make. We can hear these criticisms, and we can say, that's persecution. That's made up. We were supposed to expect this, right? It's just persecution. But I'm not actually sure that it is. It's easy for us to write off these criticisms, but I think far and away they're actually very true. Just now we heard Jesus instruct the disciples to beware the teaching of the Pharisees, to beware their, their way of life. In other words, he tells us to beware, to fear, to avoid hypocrisy, which means that the way of the Pharisees is actually an active danger for all of us. You don't, you're not, never told to beware something that's not actually a danger for you. The way of the Pharisees is a danger for disciples. For those of us who claim to follow the way of Jesus, we are literally told to be vigilant against us. And so what that means is that we are called to live an authentic Christian life. For our, for our Christianity to be whole not a manufactured authenticity, right? Like, we're not called to live the, like, pre-ripped genes equivalent of Christianity, right? We're called to live authentic Christianity, discipleship on the inside and out. And so today what we're going to do, we're going to walk through the passage, and I think we're going to see three major ways to avoid hypocrisy, three major ways to, to live an authentically Christian life. And the first one is to follow the whole way of Jesus, so let's reread 15, 1 through 9. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
but they don't wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So at this point, what we see is this group come up from Jerusalem. Jesus is still teaching in Galilee at this point, so he's in this kind of like countryside area, and this contingent of Pharisees and scribes have come from Jerusalem, which means that word has gotten out. And the, the, the temple is sending out people to investigate Jesus, likely to, to catch him in something. They're looking into this whole Jesus phenomenon. And what occurs is a clash between Jesus and the fundamentalism of his day. What, what these, these Pharisees notice is that Jesus doesn't require his disciples to wash their hands before eating. Now, for us, we might think that's kind of gross that they don't wash their hands, but we're not going to make a big stink about it because it's not that big a deal, right? But in this day, this was actually kind of a huge deal. There was a, uh, something called the oral law or the Mishnah or the fence. We've talked about it a couple times where it was a set of laws that aren't really anywhere in the Hebrew scriptures. So they're not in the actual Bible. But they're a set of laws that the Pharisees and other groups had put in place to make sure that no one broke the laws from the actual Bible. So the logic kind of went this way. It's like, we want to make really, really sure that Israel cares about purity. They need to care about ritual purity. So how are we going to do that? How about we remind them about ritual purity every single time they eat, and we'll just have them wash their hands, and then every time they they eat, they have to think about ritual purity. So that's kind of how it begins. But over time, these traditions become so important and so fixed that people feared breaking them as much as they feared breaking the actual laws from the scriptures. And so when the disciples hear about this, they hear about the disciples not washing their hands, the, the idea that comes into mind is a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope. First, you start just not washing your hands, and sure, that's all fine, but eventually, it'll end in breaking the purity laws themselves. So they call Jesus out on this, and they, they, they sort of pick a fight with him. The Pharisees are challenging whether Jesus and his disciples are truly loyal to God, because if they are truly, authentically loyal why would they challenge such a helpful tradition? And that's actually where Jesus picks up the gauntlet. He says that his disciples aren't the ones who are failing to live authentically. The disciples, or the the Pharisees are. And so Jesus brings up this, this example, and it can be kind of confusing when you encounter it, so we'll just walk through it slowly, but I think this will be helpful. So at the time, there was this practice called korban. And essentially what you would do is you'd take a sum of your money, and you would announce, all this money here is korban, like offered to God. It's given to God. And so you would actually take an oath, like a, a binding oath, and you would swear on the name of God in this oath, right? You take this oath, all this money is given to God, and what that means is that when I die, all that money is going to get donated to the temple, right? 
And so that was sort of the, the Corban laws, and it was a big deal beca precisely because you were swearing by God's name. So if you broke that kind of an oath, you were breaking the third commandment, you were soiling God's holy name, you were defiling it or whatever. And so here's what, what seemed to have been happening during the, the time, and I think this is what Jesus is referring to. You'd have kids, like grown adult, adult children, get into like an argument with their parents and just rashly, like it, you know, in, in this moment of, of anger, like, fine, your retirement funds, Corban, right? They're, all, they're offered to God. You're not getting any of it. And then they'd storm off and at a later time be like, oh my gosh, that is the worst thing I could ever do to my parents. I totally just broke the fifth commandment. And they would seek to repent of it. They'd try to change and the Pharisees would hold them to the oath. The Pharisees would hold them to the oath. It's kind of like a classic ethical dilemma from the perspective of the Pharisees. So from their perspective, they're saying, okay, sure. This person did wrong to their parents, but now the third commandment is on the line. So they can't repent of the oath, but if they keep the oath, then they have to break the fifth commandment and they fail to honor their parents. So what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And the choice comes down to this. Do you keep God's name holy or do you protect your parents? Do you live up to your responsibilities as a believer or as a child? In other words, do you love God or do you love people? For the Pharisees, that was a no-brainer at the end of the day. Well, you love God. Keep God's name holy. And so they would hold people to these, these oaths. Jesus, on the other hand, answers differently. Between loving God and loving people, Jesus says in typical form, both. You do both, right? You don't pick and choose which laws to follow. You follow the whole thing. You love both. And if you had been loving both from the beginning, there probably wouldn't be any ethical dilemma to begin with because it never would have occurred to you to skirt your parents' retirement funds in the first place right? The way to love God isn't to love him at the expense of people. That's ridiculous. If you love God, you will love people too. Jesus says, you love both. And I really, really wish that I could say that modern American Christians have been good at this. But they haven't. They haven't. And there'd be a number of directions that I could take to, to like flesh this out in real time, but I, I think one in particular will be helpful. So I think this applies to how Christians have interacted with sexual minorities in general. But today, I just want to take the trans community. Do you love God or do you love people? There are some who have chosen to love people. So there may be churches who feel the cultural pressure. I think on one level, that's it. But there's also a whole other side of it where they, they do seem in touch with the psychological trauma of being trans, and they choose to love people over God by, by fully adopting sort of the cultural narrative. So gender is highly complex. I don't have space to like fully unpack it right now. But, but from a biblical perspective, to say it super short, in, in short form, gender is a vocation in the mind of the biblical writers. It is a calling that comes to us from the outside. So we don't form gender in a very real sense. It's one of the things that God actually uses to form us. So gender is a vocation. 
In our cultural moment, though, the prevailing idea is that gender is something we create for ourselves. It doesn't define us. Rather, we define it. And so when Christians affirm this perspective in the name of compassion, they're doing so at the expense of God. It's a form of playing God. It's defining the world around us by our terms and not by his. And the choice between God and people, these particular churches are choosing people. Now, there's another side to this. And it's going to be the side that applies way more to us. Because we here at Trinity Community Church, we are a church that takes a historically Christian view of leadership, or of gender. So the leadership here at Trinity believes gender to be a calling, a function of our sex. There are many churches like us around the country, and many of us are guilty of the same sin as the Pharisees. In the choice between loving God and loving people, we have chosen love God, forget people. Across the board, almost across the board, I don't want to overgeneralize, but almost across the board, evangelical Christians have identified the trans community as the enemy and failed them miserably. In conversation, we talk about trans people like they are lepers. We avoid approaching them with intentional community or creating relationships with them. Christian social media presence on this issue can be foul, cruel, and gross. We are smearing God's name in an effort to keep it holy. I think what happens to be charitable toward us in some ways about this, we get kind of caught up in the culture war, right? So we see a small group of trans people who are sort of the activist group within the community. We see them on the cable news networks, and we feel like our religious liberty is at stake, like our personal freedoms are at stake, and so we lash out. But regardless of whether or not there is a culture war, Christians have been told bluntly in the Sermon on the Mount how we're meant to relate to our enemies. But we also have to recognize that the, the, group, the activist group within the trans community that has made themselves the enemy of Christians are a very small minority of the trans community. We forget the real people involved. Here's the truth. Living with pervasive gender dysphoria is agony. The suicide rate among trans people is astronomically high. 40%. 40% attempt suicide at some point or other. Mark Yarhouse is a psychologist that's done a lot of work with gender dysphoria. In fact, his, he wrote a book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria, and it's awesome. I highly recommend it. It's very, very good. Anyway, he, he, he's written a lot about this, talked a lot about this. He points out that most gender dysphoric people don't identify with the activist community we see on the cable news networks. They are real people under an intense amount of mental distress who just want the confusion to stop. Many of them don't want to do away with gender because if you do away with gender, what is it that they're identifying with on the other side, right? What are they wanting if it's not gender? And so a lot of times they don't even relate to the activist groups. Many don't want to lose gender, they want to keep it. And so it's really, really important for us as Christians, particularly Christians who hold a historic view of gender, to realize that trans people are not the enemy in the culture war, they are the casualties. The church doesn't have to choose between the way of God and the way of the world. So for those of you who are sitting here, maybe you're experiencing gender dysphoria. I think most, most likely there, there's many of us who know people who are. This is our posture. Our posture is one of love and empathy. 
Our hope is that here at Trinity, trans people will find a group of people who will patiently walk with them for the long haul through all the confusion of what they're going through. And so I hope that we can be a place where trans people can escape the culture war and neither be a tool of the left nor a target of the right, but instead be a beloved child of God, where we as a church can commit to walking with them through their mess because Jesus is walking with us through ours. Trans people are no less eligible for discipleship than any of us cisgender folk here. And that's not a sacrifice of loving God. It's an expression of loving God. If we love God, we will love people. We can do both. Our goal at Trinity is to both love God and love people. We follow the whole way of Jesus. Second way of avoiding hypocrisy, we value inward change more than outward appearance. So verses 10 through 20. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when, you sit, when, you, when they heard this saying? He answered them, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth, it just passes into the stomach and it's expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, the core of a person. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile anybody. The New York Times ran an op-ed that was really interesting. They, the article was just reporting on a body of research that had just come to a conclusion. And specifically, the, the researchers were trying to identify what it is about hypocrisy that bugs us. Which just for, I'm just glad that somebody thought to do that study. Like, that's brilliant. Like, what is it about hypocrisy that bugs us? Grant money. Brilliant. Anyway, what they found is that many of us, right? That's awesome. Like, this is what research is for. I, th I love it. Anyway, what they, what they found is that many of us know people who have a moral standard and live inconsistently with it, and we don't think they're hypocrites. So let me explain. So let's say we all know somebody who firmly believes that you should read more than you watch TV. You should read more than you watch TV. And then we find out that the other night, he had a Netflix binge. None of us, but seriously, none of us would instantly say, hypocrite, right? We'd probably be like, well, that is the struggle, right? <laughs> you know, no, we wouldn't think he's a hypocrite right away. We start to think they're a hypocrite when they have a moral standard, and they use that moral standard to look superior. When they use it like a cudgel right? That's when we start to deploy the term hypocrite. We use it when it becomes clear that they don't care about the distractibility of the American mind. They don't care about the increasingly cynical content of, of media. They don't care about like the decreasing literacy of Generation Z. It becomes clear that they don't care about any of that stuff. They don't care about literacy. 
They're using it. They don't love it. They're using it. They're using it for a kind of power. Hypocrisy is a kind of virtue signaling, if you know what virtue signaling is. Hand-washing for the Pharisees functioned in a similar way. When they washed their hands before a meal, they didn't do it out of sincere devotion to God. They did it to appear like they had a sincere devotion to God. It was a way of saying, we're in the in-group. We are card-carrying holy people. Hand-washing was this kind of easy way for them to come across like the religious elite. It was first-century Jewish virtue signaling, and Jesus calls it out for what it is. He says, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out. In other words, hand-washing doesn't prove anything about someone's relationship to God. What matters is something way more intangible. Day-to-day service. Day-to-day humility. Day-to-day prayer and connection to God. Daily love. It's way more difficult to, to measure. Virtue signaling is too easy. Inward change is important, not outward appearances. The, the, the Pharisees don't ultimately care about holiness. They care about appearing holy. And so often the crowds are deceived by it because it's not only the Pharisees that are caught up in the outward appearances, the crowds are too. And so when they see somebody virtue signaling, they instantly think like, oh man, I need to get in that boat, right? I need to follow along with what, what's happening with this because I don't want to be on the wrong side, you know, wrong side of history. I don't want to like not add my voice to this movement that will ultimately be successful and I'll feel left out, whatever. So when they see the Pharisees virtue signaling, the blind end up leading the blind. Both of them are deceived by outward appearances. Both, Jesus says, fall into a pit, metaphorically. The blind lead the blind when we are deceived by outward appearances. I think this is happening a ton in our day. It's become really trendy to be an advocate for something. And hear me, being an advocate for something is awesome. Christians should care deeply about justice, about the world looking like God wants it to. We should care deeply about it. What's interesting about this cultural moment is that it's become trendy to advocate for justice. And so Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they've all become places where we can curate an image of ourselves as an activist. So we're going to post provocative articles, be like, I thought this one was really great, and then post, and like, I don't even know if they fully read it, you know, mostly clickbait, but whatever. We post the provocative articles, we advocate for different causes. From the other end of the screen, people think we're these amazing activist types. Like, man, look at Mike's Facebook. He is so woke right? And then we brush off our hands and close our laptops and we're done. I've done my part as long as people think I've done my part. A friend of mine, you glance at his Facebook and you'll see like pictures of his cat, (laughs) Uh, like different work projects he's doing. He's an indie filmmaker, so he promotes a lot of his stuff on Facebook. Um, some of us here, here know him, in fact. He's, he's a, a Christian. And he remarked to me once, um, I thought this was just the perfect embodiment of what Jesus says is real discipleship in, in a world of virtue signaling. He remarked to me like, man, I've been on Facebook lately. And like, there's lots of folks that are talking about racial injustice and, and talking about poverty and they're arguing a lot and they're posting a lot. And I just, I really felt 
Like God was saying that I, I too need to get involved. And so I donated a bunch of my money to a nonprofit. <laughs> awesome. I was like, it was just this perfect way of how a Christian actually engages. And, and for him, he didn't think twice about it. It was just like, oh, well, I want to get involved in too. He like was very charitable toward the people he was, he was looking at online. Instead, it was just like, I want to get involved too. Here's my money. Like he actually had skin in the game. It was just a natural part of his discipleship. Status updates are cheap. Tweets are cheap. What goes into the mouth gets expelled. What comes out of the mouth reveals the heart. My friend's heart is whole. It isn't divided between outward appearance and inward change. He is what he appears to be because he is a true disciple of Jesus, and I love him for it. If what we really care about is what people think of us, then we will virtue signal and be satisfied. If what we really care is what God thinks of us, then we will follow Jesus. We will look to God to conform us more and more into the image of Christ, both inside and out. So we value inward change more than outward appearance. Finally, adapt your ideas to Jesus, not Jesus to your ideas. So jumping ahead to chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and and, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So we're jumping ahead a little bit because we want to to bring these passages together because they're so related, but what we've skipped over is the feeding of the 4,000. We're going to do that next week. So in between... we just read in the passage before that Jesus has fed another giant group of people miraculously. So that's, that's catching you up with, where, with where, you, where we are. So at this point, the Sadducees and the Pharisees come together, and they're going to ask Jesus for a sign. These are typically groups that hate each other, by the way. They, they disagree on, very, on pretty much everything, but apparently they found something to agree on, right? Like, oh, you hate Jesus too? Awesome. Let's go talk. To-. So they approach Jesus, and they ask him for a sign from heaven, a sign from heaven, That's an interesting thing to ask for. So we've seen the religious authorities ask Jesus for a sign, but not a sign from heaven. Is there something different here? What what do they mean? Well, these guys believe that Messiah is a figure who will usher in the last days. We've talked about this before, that Messiah was going to be this, this figure who would bring in the kingdom of God, establish God's justice in the world, like end all evil, banish it from all creation, and bring everything to, like all of human history, into the new era. Messiah was meant to do all of that. He was meant to bring heaven to earth. And, and so I think what they're asking for here, it might be a miracle that would have something to do with that final glorious kingdom appearing. And so Jesus comes back at him. He says, you guys are able to look at the heavens, skies, pun. You guys are able to look at the, the, the signs of the sky and tell the weather, right? So red in the morning, sailor take warning. Red at night, sailor take flight or something. Was it? 
Right, that, whatever you said. So the, the Pharisees can read the signs of the heavens, the skies, but they're blind to the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Jesus means. If the religious authorities had been willing to see it, they would have recognized that everywhere Jesus goes, the kingdom of heaven follows him. Everywhere he goes, God, God's kingdom follows. Lives are changed. Wherever he, he goes, diseases are healed. Injuries restored. God's way is capturing people's hearts. Wherever he went, the kingdom went with him. But he didn't do things according to their expectations. And they couldn't adapt their ideas. I think this is a perennial issue. Generation after generation. Like we think if Jesus was really and truly God incarnate, he would have done things differently. For one thing, his morals would have lined up perfectly with 21st century postmodern morals. That's a no-brainer. If he was really God, he would agree with everything I think. I wouldn't have to change, right? That, that's, a, that's the real sign of a savior. But more importantly, if he was really the savior, he would have made it more obvious. He would have changed everything instantly. He would have ushered in a better world, in other words. Just like the Pharisees, we think if Jesus was really who he claimed to be, his kingdom would have broken in. The Pharisees wanted a sign that the new age had dawned. And the funny thing is, is that they actually got one. So Jesus says the only sign from heaven that they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. So you'll remember earlier, this has come up before. Jesus has said this before. The, the idea is that just as Jonah is buried in the belly of the fish for three days and returns, Jesus will be buried in the belly of the earth and return. What's amazing is that for the early Christians, the resurrection was significant even beyond the fact that Jesus was alive again, as though that wasn't enough. It had even more significance than just a man walking out of his grave they believed that Jesus was resurrected into the life of the new age. That he was resurrected into the life of new creation. He was raised into a body that won't decay or age, a body that won't die again, the kind of body that God intends for all of his people to have when the kingdom comes fully. The early Christians believed that, Jesus, that his resurrection was the dawning of the new age. So one theologian puts it like this. He, he imagines all of us as Christians living on the other side of the resurrection, that all of us are sort of outside very, very early in the morning, so early that's dark out. And all of us are facing east. And it looks like night, and it feels like night. But suddenly, a really, really faint light just creeps over the edge of the horizon. Just a very faint light. Now, not much else has changed still really dark out, still cold. And yet all of us looking east know that morning is here. And soon the morning is going to overcome the darkness. We aren't in night anymore. We're just at the beginning of dawn. That's how the resurrection of Jesus functions. It is the beginning of the dawn. The Pharisees were looking for a sign of the new era. And Jesus says they're going to get one when he rises again. Now, for those of you who may relate to the Pharisees here, 
I don't want to rush too far ahead. If, if you're in this place where it's like, man, I still think that, that this is a little like ambiguous. I mean, you're referring to something that the Bible claims to, ref, like, to prove something the Bible claims. Isn't that kind of circular? So if you relate to that, I would, I would just encourage you to avoid a narrow mind. So the, the way things played out with Jesus, it didn't fit the mold of anything that anyone expected in the first century. So in the Old Testament, scriptures that have to do with the Messiah, here's some things that they didn't include. Dying and rising, right? Messiah was not talked about as this figure who would get crushed by injustice and then rise again. That wasn't something in the mind of first century Jews. Nobody was talking about that. And so for me, what I would encourage you to do if, if you're working through many of these issues, I would just ask you to consider this question. Why would a bunch of devout Jewish people, like the writers of the New Testament, why would Paul and James and John, the writer of Hebrews, Peter, why would all of them believe that Messiah had not only come, but had died and risen? I mean, these guys, they're not talking about Jesus' resurrection as just like some cool thing that happened. They are building their theology on it. They are banking everything on the bodily resurrection of Christ. And so what sort of event would cause all these Jewish thinkers to reinterpret their entire scriptures and build a theological system on the premise that Jesus is Messiah and Lord was killed and rose again? What kind of event would do that short of a resurrection? I'm not really sure. The Pharisees wanted a sign that the new age had dawned, dawned that the, the kingdom had broken in, and they got one. But they missed it because they couldn't adapt. And so as you puzzle through these things, what I would encourage you to do is to adapt your ideas to Jesus. Don't adapt him to your ideas. So how do we avoid hypocrisy? We follow the whole way of Jesus. We value inward change more than outward appearances, and we adapt our ideas to Jesus, not the other way around. So that's three ways to avoid hypocrisy. Now, why should we? Because in this moment, it's way easier to virtue signal on Facebook, right? Like being a person of integrity might require calories to accomplish. I can just repost something. Why should we avoid hypocrisy? So here's something kind of cool. Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah back in the beginning of today's passage. So he, he quotes from Isaiah when Isaiah says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of God. So you'll remember that when Jesus quotes a passage, he's usually not taking it out of context, right? He's usually plucking out a passage because its whole context supports what he's claiming. And so it's interesting, when you look back at that Isaiah passage, it's Isaiah 29. You can turn there with me if, if you'd like. I apologize, I don't have the same Bible as the Pew Bible, so I don't know the page number. It's after the Song of Solomon and before Jeremiah, so somewhere around there. If you start the Psalms and move left or right, you'll eventually hit it. So Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, and it's this moment where, where Israel has been basically doing what the Pharisees are doing. They've been paying lip service to God, but they really they're more using God than, they're, than they are doing anything else. Their hearts are far from God. And so God announces what he's going to do in response. There's a couple of verses where he is describing them. As people draw near with their mouth, they honor me with their lips. That's verse 13 in 29. 
And then he, in 15 and 16, he's describing them, saying, who's going to see what we're doing? Who really knows us? And, and basically, they're, they're trying to adapt God to their ideas. Should the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. So a lot of what we've been seeing, but then check out where it goes. So God is going to respond. He's going to shame the would-be Israel. He's going to do it by raising up a different Israel. And he describes the coming of the kingdom, and it sounds a whole lot like the book of Matthew, right? So verse 17, this is a metaphor that he uses of a, the cedars of Lebanon, giant forest that had been ravaged um, by the Assyrians, I think. Don't quote me on that. So he uses this, this image of a, a barren field breaking into life again. It is not a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field. And the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Jump to verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. Jacob was the sort of great, 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 great grandfather of the entire nation of Israel. The nation is named for Jacob. No more shall Jacob's face grow metaphorically pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will make my name holy. They won't smear it. They won't live double-minded lives. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. Those who murmur will accept instruction. The Pharisees said they wanted to keep God's name holy. They wanted to sanctify it. But in their hypocrisy, they tarnished his name and they missed out on the kingdom when it came. But Jesus is calling us today to sanctify the name of God by seeing his kingdom in the person of Jesus. We are being called to stand awestruck at the way the kingdom comes, not by the love of power, but by the power of love. He is calling us not to virtue signal our place in his heart, but to give ourselves wholeheartedly to him, to love God and to love our neighbor. He's calling us not to try to prove ourselves, but to see that Jesus has proven himself. He is bringing the kingdom to the blind, the deaf, the meek, and the poor, and restoring all things to wholeness. We as evangelicals cannot afford to live double-mindedly. We cannot afford to live for consumerism at the expense of Christ, political partisanship at the expense of Christ, hedonism at the expense of Christ, self-advancement at the expense of Christ, it will fracture us from the inside out. Jesus is offering us wholeness. And in hypocrisy, we won't just reflect poorly on him. We will actually miss out on the very thing for which we were made. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you would give us singleness of heart. That we would will one thing, and that is to seek you and your kingdom. Lord, I, I pray that, that now as we, as we sit here, that 
that we would examine ourselves. In fact, why don't we take a minute and just examine our own hearts as we walk into worship. And, and my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will, will identify what it is that we each need to confess. So let's just take a second, pray, and, and let the Spirit convict our hearts. Thank you that you have promised to lead us into all truth and to convict us of sin. And so, Spirit, we, we want to live as authentic disciples. And we know that we so often fail. That we miss out on the life that you made us for and we smear your name to the watching world. And we thank you, Lord, that your love extends even to us. And so we confess these things to you. We confess where we have fallen short. And we see in your word that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we thank you, Lord, for the cross by which we are forgiven and for the resurrection by which we have hope that hypocrites like us can be saved. Lead us, Lord, into wholeness. That we would love you and love people. Thank you for your grace. Amen.